If you brought a Bible, I would ask you to turn and open to Hebrews chapter 10. We continue today, Palm Sunday, in the book of Hebrews, and we come to a culmination part of this book as well. For the last five chapters, this author has been highlighting over and over and in nuanced ways how Jesus is our true and better and greater high priest. And, uh, and he's made that point in a number of ways. And so now 10, 1 through 18, uh, the piece of real estate we'll be in this morning, brings that to an end and then serves then to transition uh, into the next section, which is really application. So based on all of that, how should we live? And that'll be fitting for us to get to after, after Easter. But for today... Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, 
there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. You ready for some heavy lifting for a few minutes? I am, I think. As I said, this is the culmination of our author's treatment of the superior, better than nature of Jesus' high priesthood. One that we learned weeks ago is in the line of Melchizedek, this sort of bizarre character that shows up for just a few verses in Genesis, but then uh, the, the psalmist brings out, and then the writer to Hebrews says, yes, that's him, that's Jesus, he's in that line. And, and, and so this, again, is, is a high point, and again, a restatement of all the things. Now, just briefly, um, we finished last week, 9, 11 to 28, and there the focus, there had been two main focus, really three things the author keeps coming back to. Last week, the focus was on how Jesus' blood, remember, nothing but the blood, 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 his blood is better than all that blood that was shed by all the animals. And so the, the emphasis we saw in part was on his blood being better. Then we also saw how the location of Jesus being in God's presence is better than this human tabernacle, this human tent that had been set up and taken down and moved and, and that whole process. And it's not that those things didn't matter. They, they were ultimately pointing forward. Ultimately, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. So the location... Uh, is better now because what Jesus has done and by him going before the presence of God as the high priest and offering his own life, it's a better location. And then finally now, our author brings this whole thing to to this end with a third point, not specifically about the blood, not specifically about the location, but about how his offering once for all is better than the repetitious offerings of the high priest year after year after year. And so that is our focus today, the greater once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. And again, I just love, it's fitting for us to think about this today because on uh, Friday, Good Friday, right, early in the morning, if we're able to think about it, maybe you're able to attend a Good Friday service. The whole point is Jesus gave himself willingly uh, once-for-all on the cross, that once-for-all sacrifice. And so today we get a theological understanding of it even as we move toward Good Friday and, and what Jesus would do. So this morning, as we move through these 18 verses, uh, here's what I hope to do. I, I want us to see four realities, four realities that, that come from Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. Okay? And really, they're, they're four nuanced things that all relate together. So we're going to see how Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice takes away sin. Number two, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice sanctifies and sanctifies. What does that mean? We'll see. Number three, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice makes perfect. And then number four, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice brings forgiveness. And as I said, really, they're all kind of saying similar things. Take away sin, sanctifies and sanctifies, makes perfect, brings forgiveness, all a part of his once-for-all sacrifice for sin. So let's see these things as we move through verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews 10, starting uh, back at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it, that is the law, 
It can never, by the sacrifices that are part of the law, that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So we've seen this word shadow already in chapter 8, verse 5. Our author used it there to speak of the old covenant and how the old covenant was a shadow. And we understand shadows uh, to some degree, right? You can be out riding your bike and all of a sudden you look and is that someone next to you? Oh no, that's, that's your shadow, okay? And like, oh, that's, that's me, but it's not me. I'm here. It's, it's a shadow. It's, it's uh, a connection to the reality, but it, it's not the reality. And so our author picks this word up again to say that the shadow isn't, isn't contradictory. And we have to be careful here, right? And we talked about this. Um, we live in a day when new things, right? We, we upgrade our devices and we get a new phone, a new, a new device, and it's supposed to be better than the old. And uh, we get, you know, an upgrade to our, our television cable and the new is supposed to be better than, you know, the old. And, and on and on again, appliances, I mean, vehicles, right? Just so much of life is, is constantly about new things that are superior. And then let's be honest, the older you get, you, you long for the good old days, right? When you could just like turn knobs, right? Instead of having to swipe and, you know, all this kind of things. I, I, maybe it's my eyes, maybe it's my, my digits, but I, I miss knobs a lot more than I thought I would. So it's not that the old is totally bad. It, it, it's been replaced, the new covenant, what God has done um, is showing that, that the old covenant, the old way God related, the covenant is about a relationship, this, this commitment God made. Um, God entered into this relationship, and he did that to point forward. And, and, and this is a reminder that we have to read our whole Bible. And it's not that we only read the New Testament, but we read... The Old Testament in light of the new. What does is, what is this new covenant, New Testament say about these things? I was, I was reminded even of a chapter some of you will remember. Luke chapter 24. You don't have to turn there, but if, unless you want. Luke 24 is, is Luke's account of the resurrection. Uh, so, so Easter Sunday and then some events later that afternoon. And so there's a famous story. I'll just read Parts of it, Luke 24, verse 13. Later in the day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. That is two of the disciples. We aren't sure exactly who. Two of his followers, they were were walking. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, about about Jesus' death. And even though Jesus had made it clear explicitly three times towards the end of his three-year ministry, but there were hints even before that, that he would have to uh, be arrested and and suffer and die. And he was clear. It just was not categorically what they thought of. They they weren't expecting what happened to happen. So when Jesus died on Good Friday, they they thought that was it. They they just didn't understand. And of course, some things have happened, uh, as we'll look at briefly next week, or briefly now, but we'll get to more next week. Um, the women go to the tomb, the tomb's empty, and, and he's risen, and there's a celebration, and word gets back to uh, the disciples, but there's a couple that weren't there, and they're talking about all these things, all that they've probably experienced in their three years with Jesus, what, what happened to him. Verse 15 says, while they were walking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes 
were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these days? Are you clueless, mister? That's what they're asking. Really? Really? You don't know what has happened? And Jesus said to them, what things? (laughs) And they go on to describe concerning Jesus of Nazareth, and they they begin to say some things uh, about what happened. And, And finally, jump down, verse 25, he said to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer and that these things, and, and enter into his glory? And, and right here, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And uh, it goes on. So Jesus basically gives them the greatest Bible lesson ever, you, you know, you could say, um, and he shows that all this stuff, it was a shadow. Law, the, the sacrificial system, the priests, it all was just a shadow pointing forward, pointing forward. It all has its fulfillment in me one way or another, maybe direct fulfillment, maybe by, by being a type of, but it, but it points forward. And their eyes get opened, and, uh, and it's, it's a fun uh, remainder of the story. And that's what our author back here in Hebrews is, is saying. The law, the sacrifices that were offered every year, they were a shadow because they can never make perfect those who draw near. Now, we'll come back to that word perfect in in a few moments. Verse 2, our author continues. He says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, right? If if these offerings made perfect, made whole, I guess we'll get there. Then, then wouldn't they have stopped since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Like, wouldn't their sins have been completely dealt with? Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Reminders. How many of you are like me? You need reminders. Whether you write it on paper and stick a note somewhere, you use your, your watch if your watch has that ability, technology, right? Or your, your tablets or whatever. I, I need reminders of things. There's so many things that I can forget. Well, they didn't forget about their sins because every year there was this reminder of their sins and, and then year would go by and yep, they would be reminded yet once again. But then he makes this culminating point, verse four. It is impossible you know the word impossible in the Greek means impossible. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What, what was happening year after year, there was, a, there was a cleansing that was going on. There was a ceremonial cleansing, and, and God prescribed it. It was part of God's plan for his people but it was always to show, and there we were reminded, that it couldn't, couldn't fulfill its obligation. The law, including the sacrifice, sacrifice system, could not take away sins. Now, we've, we've talked a bunch how 
You know, this is so far removed from us. Most of us have no concept of priests and whatnot, kings, let alone sacrifices. Um, and he says, it's impossible, can't happen for animals' blood to take away sins. The law can't take away sins, including what, what the law put in, what God put into the law in terms of the sacrifices. Well, even if sacrifice is far removed from us, we, we need to hear that bigger point that the law that is obeying can't take away sins. Your obedience to God doesn't take away your sins. But oh, do we forget that. And we, we, we can think, okay, that's right. I, God saved me from my sins, uh, but now I have to obey in order to have him take away my sins. And we, 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 we live often, even those of us that know the gospel, as if obeying the law makes us right with God, as if obeying what God says makes us right with him. And, and hear me, it doesn't make you right. O- obeying is a sign of your love for him. It's a sign that he's done something in you, these things we're seeing today, but obeying doesn't make you right. Just as obeying the sacrificial system couldn't make right, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for your perfect church attendance, your perfect devotions, your perfect love for your kids and your spouse and your friends and on and on and on, whatever it is, to take away your sins. Stop trying to have your sins taken away by what you do. It's impossible. The law was never put into place so that by obeying it, we would have our sins taken away because it doesn't work. No one can. It's impossible. It is impossible. And again, though, it's not that the old covenant, the system was bad. It, it, was, it was there to remind them like we sang about a few minutes ago, God is holy. He is holy. And, and who are we to think we can just come before him and draw near that, that language of drawing near? We've heard our writer talk about how we should draw near because of what Jesus has done. And, and yet people tried to draw near yearly based on what their high priest would do for them. And yet ultimately it, it didn't accomplish what they thought it could and what they wanted it to do, and it was never intended. It, it, is to point, it is supposed to point forward. It's not a waste of time. It's a reminder. They ultimately need a Savior. We, too, ultimately need a Savior. So look at the language here. Uh, back again at the end of verse 1. It's in, these repetitious things cannot make perfect. Okay, we're going to see that phrase come up again. And then in in verse 4, it's impossible for sins to be taken away. Well, the implication is this repetitious thing can't make perfect and take away sins, but the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus makes it so that sins can be taken away. It is possible for the blood of Jesus to take away sins, and it's only possible by by his work there. But continuing on then into verse, verse 5. Not only did Jesus once for all sacrifice take away sins, and, and I should note too that that phrase take away, the Apostle Paul um, uses it in Romans chapter 11 uh, where he quotes from Isaiah 59. 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Their sins are, are taken away. Blood and The blood of goats and bulls can't, but it is possible for the blood of Jesus to take away sins for those who draw near. Yeah, so number, number one, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice takes away sins. But then number two, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice the way I'm putting it, sanctifies and sanctifies. Sanctifies and sanctifies. Let me read again, verses five through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now this is one of those interesting things I want you to notice. And if you have a Bible with some of the little letters, it's, it's pointing you to things. Our writer is about to quote Psalm chapter 40, verses six to eight, okay? So the psalmist wrote those things in, in their context some thousand years before the time of Jesus. But our writer says, consequently, when, when he, and it's referring back to Christ, so that's why the ESV puts in the word Christ for he, when, when he, Christ, came into the world, speaking of his incarnation, his first appearing, he said, Jesus said, and now he quotes Psalm 40. So now, according to Hebrews, Psalm 40 is messianic. It's Jesus speaking. Here's what Jesus says. Sacrifices and offerings, you, God the Father, have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So Jesus is once for all sacrifice, whereas we're going to see in a moment here, sanctifies and sanctifies. But first, he here is quoting uh, what, again, is Psalm 40 in its context. But, but now again, Jesus saying, or the writer saying, this is Jesus speaking. Picking back up at verse 8. He now summarizes the psalm. When Jesus, he said above in this quote of Psalm 40, that you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, that law that could not remove sin, couldn't take away sin. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And then here's his Explanation, second part of verse nine. What does all this mean? He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So our our writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explaining the law, explaining all this says, hey, when Jesus came at the incarnation, when he arrived, he said, and he quotes Psalm 40, hey, these sacrifices, God, you've not desired this. But instead, you've made a body, and implying his body, and, and your desire is that I obey your will. I've come to do your will, to obey the intent of things. And, and so, by doing that now, the first is done away with, that is, the sacrificial system. It's time for that to be done. In its place, the will of him who obeyed God is now in place. So, again, we scratch our heads a little bit and say, well, if it was never God's intent, why did he set it up? And again, we have to understand he 
put it there so that people would see there was still a savior to come. There was still someone who was needed. This system repeated over and over again, couldn't take away sins. This system couldn't, couldn't sanctify and sanctify, as we'll see in a second. Someone else was needed to come. And when Jesus came into the world, he gets to be the one to put aside the first and now be this one who does God's will perfectly. And we talk about that. I try to say that to us all the time. Jesus not only died on the cross to forgive our sins, he lived perfectly the life we can't live. He perfectly obeyed God's will. He alone perfectly obeyed God's will. And and prophetically and through Psalm 40, that's what Jesus says. I have come to do your will. And then we get to the sanctifies and sanctifies. So verse 10, and by that will, that is by Jesus having come to do God's will, which he did perfectly, by that perfect life, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Because Jesus perfectly obeyed, was perfectly there to obey and do the will of God, that God has used so that we then, when we come to Christ, when he saves us, again, we've talked about these truths, God takes the righteousness of Christ and imputes it into us. Uh, So as we sing often at Easter from 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, Jesus, who was perfect and knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, this great exchange, this imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And so that that takes place. And so we have been, here, here are the tense, have been sanctified. How many of you woke up this morning and said, I feel sanctified today? I didn't. I woke up 40 minutes ahead of my alarm. I hate when that happens. I don't generally walk around feeling sanctified. What is what does sanctified mean? It means holy. If you remember, you've been in church, the Apostle Paul is, is a good example. He writes these letters to the churches and he writes to the saints at Philippi, the saints at Ephesus, the saints at Thessalonica, wherever. Saint is a sanctified one, a holy person, Right? If you are here this morning and if the blood of Jesus has cleansed you of your sin, if you're a Christian, right, however we want to nuance it, if you've had your sins forgiven, all these things we're looking at, if you're a Christian, a biblical Christian, okay, you're, you're a saint. You, you are a saint. You don't have to die and then in a hundred years have some council of people give you that title. You are. You're, you're a saint, You have been sanctified. It's done. You have been sanctified. Now, the problem is, and this is why my my point is, Jesus is once for all sacrifice, sanctifies and sanctifies. Because on the one hand, you have been, I have been, I've been made holy because of what Jesus has done. Positionally, when God the Father looks at me, when he looks at you if you're a Christian, 
he sees a sanctified one, a saint, a holy one. That is, because of the work of Christ. Sins, past, present, future, have been removed, cleansed, you've been sanctified, all these, these things we're seeing. But in experience, you grumble, you complain. Oh, that way, that was me. You, you lie, you cheat, you, you, you think things you ought not to think. You're unkind to people. And just keep going with that list. Inside. So we are sanctified positionally, made holy, but we are progressively being sanctified. So jump actually to verse 14. I want you to see this right away. So notice the change in in the tense. So verse 10, you have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So we have been sanctified. And and the the language here, the, the grammatical construction, it's such that this could be saying the same thing, those who are being sanctified, that is, those whom God is saving, he's sanctifying, or it could speak of what we experience daily and over our life, that, that progressive sanctification. What the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, being conformed and transformed into the image of Christ, right? And it's, it's a slow process. It's gradual. You've heard me joke, right? I didn't uh, become perfect the day I became a Christian. It took two weeks, and of course, that's, that's nonsense because none of us have, have that experience. But if we are Christians, if we have been sanctified, we, we are being sanctified. And God will use life and its trials. I'm thinking even of Roger's sermon uh, from a couple weeks ago. Um, the, the vine, right? Jesus, and we're branches. And, and, and God is the vine dresser. And those whom God loves, he prunes Pruning hurts. <laughs> but it does, seriously. Think, think of things in your life. Maybe you're going through something right now that if, if, if God said, what is your will for your life? You'd say, take this thing. Because it hurts, it's hard, it's challenging. It, but God is using everything we, we, we face. If, if we are his, if we are Christians, if we've been sanctified, he's using everything we experience for him to sanctify us. And again, it's because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. It sanctifies and sanctifies. We have been sanctified. We are being sanctified. The third thing we see is that Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice makes perfect. So this word we encountered up at the top, in verse 1, right? The law, and it's a shadow, and these sacrifices year after year, continually, they can't make perfect. But now, jump back to our, our verses. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin, sins, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time 
until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected, there's that word again, for all time, those who are being sanctified. So again, different nuances related to what Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice does. It takes away sin, it sanctifies and sanctifies, and and then here, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice makes perfect. Well, again, when we hear the word perfect, we think of perfection. And, And all of us are far from perfect. So what does that mean? Is it, is it speaking only of positionally? Is it speaking of one day we will be perfect? And, and, and that is a truth. When we are glorified one day, we will be perfect. But that's not what our author talks about here at all. Um, our author has used this word uh, several times already. And again, it's not the notion of, of a lack of flaws, when we think something is perfect, right? We think of it not having any, any, any flaws. In the, in the context of Hebrews, and again, our writer has talked about this idea in chapter 7, verse 11, chapter 7, 19, uh, chapter 9, 9, and now here. Um, each time, he's not connotating, you know, being free from a flaw, but, but rather the idea of being in a right relationship with God where, where there's a wholeness being made whole, right, with God. That, that is the sense of perfection. Again, we translate it here, the, this perfect, but it can mean whole, complete. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is getting at. If you have had your sins dealt with by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, if you are, had the sins taken away, if you've been sanctified and are being sanctified, you also have been made perfect, been made whole, been made right, with God. And even that, do we wake up in the morning as we start our day? God, I'm whole with you. I'm right with you. Not because of what I've done, but because of Jesus. We, we ought to wake up and, and start our day that way. It might change a lot of things how we go about our day. His once-for-all sacrifice makes perfect, makes whole. I want you not to miss something, though. Um, starting at verse 11, our author contrasts four things um, with, with the older system and then how Jesus, you know, it's, it's a contrasting relationship. So in verse 11, we, we note that the sacrifices under the law were presented daily. Okay, we see that right at the top of verse 11. Secondly, priests stood. Don't miss that. Every priest stands. Makes sense. They're doing sacrifices uh, when, when they're rendering their service. Number three, multiple sacrifices were offered again and again, right? Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. So, okay, well, that's all going on. And then number four, those sacrifices, regardless of how many times they were offered, could never take away sin. Notice all that in verse 11. Uh, Repeatedly, um, daily, standing, and so forth. But but notice now the difference with with Jesus. Jesus and his sacrifice, it was offered for one time, once for all time. It culminated not in Jesus sitting, or in standing rather, like the high priest, but in him sitting down at the right hand of God in that place of honor. Be at the right hand 
of a, of a king in those days was to be at the right hand, the place of power, the position of power. Jesus doesn't need to stand. He, he can sit. What he's done once for all gives him that, that, that right. Number three, it involves one sacrifice, not, not again, this repetitious thing. And it, in fact, did accomplish perfection. It made whole those for whom the sacrifice was offered. What, what a glorious contrast there that our author wants us to see. By the way, too, I want you not to miss this. Verse 13, as he's seated at the right hand of the Father, it says, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There's again a reference back to Psalm 110. That psalm that's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. He's sneaking it in one more time. But here's what I want you to see. Look back at chapter 9. We ended last week, chapter 9, verse 28. It says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear, he's going to come back a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So again, if, if, if the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus has removed our sin, is sanctified and is sanctifying, has made us perfect, we are waiting for Jesus to come back and to, to finish what he started, and to save us completely, to glorify us. That's good news if all of that is true of you. But back to chapter 10, being seated at the right hand of God, verse 13, he's there waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. There's that, that imagery of the foot of Jesus on, on his enemies. I can remember so vividly when we moved back to Sonoma County, now 19 years ago, after living in Southern California, uh, in two counties that were dramatically different politically than, than Sonoma County is politically, even though it's in California. And, and I can remember vividly seeing you know, bumper stickers along these lines, um, who would Jesus bomb? And, and there's some truth to bumper sticker theology of any kind, the whole point of it. It's like a greeting card, right? There's, there's truth to things. And the, the point, I'm guessing, I never talked to whoever made that, but the, the, the point is Jesus is loving and he's forgiving and he's gracious and he's kind and he says, come to me. Right? He's not out to bomb people. <laughs> true, true. And chapter nine, he's gonna save those who eagerly wait for him and, and, and you know, all of that. But he's still the same God. God is from Genesis to Revelation and Jesus is gonna come back to judge, to deal with his enemies. And, and that's the, the, the part we don't always remember, we don't always talk about. That's why the message is be saved. Respond to him. He, he, he may not bomb. The bumper sticker might be right. He may not bomb, but, but he's coming back to deal with his enemies. Ultimately, Satan, but his enemies, those who, who refuse him. So that's a warning. Jesus is once for all sacrifice, takes away sin. His once for all sacrifice sanctifies and sanctifies. His once for all sacrifice 
makes perfect, that is, makes whole, complete, makes us suited for a relationship with God. And then finally, last thing, Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice brings forgiveness. So picking up at verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and then our writer in Hebrews quotes Jeremiah 31. He's already quoted extensively Jeremiah 31 back in chapter 8. And that's the context of the new covenant, what, what, what God is doing in this new means of relating to us. And now he quotes it again. But, but again, don't miss the little things like him saying it's the Holy Spirit. God's word, we believe, is God's word. It is God's revelation to us, and that includes the Holy Spirit being the one who works through human authors, but who speaks, and and that's what he's saying here. The Holy Spirit, he bears witness to us. He shows us this truth. For after saying, Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with them, After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And now our author says, and then he, the Holy Spirit, adds, Jeremiah 31, 34, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Jesus' once for all sacrifice brings forgiveness. He will remember our sins and lawless deeds no more. Now, for God to remember our sins and lawless deeds no more, that what that means is he forgives completely our lawless deeds. He remembers. He's not forgetful like I'm forgetful. It's not that like it's vanished from his mind. God knows all things. God knows everything, past, present, future. He's omniscient. If God's omniscient, then he can't literally forget this is language to help us understand. For, for God to for, for not remember their sins and need deeds no more is that he forgives completely, which is why then verse 18 is our writer's explanation. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. To have God forget and or not remember sins means that you're forgiven completely. God, God knows what we did, but, but we've been forgiven. He doesn't hold it against us. He's completely forgiven us. This is what the new covenant brings. And the Holy Spirit bears witness. In other words, God is right now through the Holy Spirit reminding you, if you've been forgiven by Jesus' once and for all sacrifice, you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. When, when, when I was younger, and, and I know this as a dad, there, there can be that, you know, desire to want to pray again. I just I want God to forgive me. I still feel guilty for what I did. Well, have you prayed? He's forgiven you. He, hey, but, but I feel guilty. And there's that, that conscious conscience thing, and we're going to look and learn more about our conscience later in Hebrews. But, but if his once-for-all sacrifice has removed sin, has sanctified and sanctifies, has made perfect, made us whole, then, and it's also brought complete forgiveness. Let me, let me quote from one commentator as I wrap up. What a beautiful truth on which to end this section of Hebrews. All of redemptive history, all of the work of Christ, all of the plans of the Father 
have been aimed at this solitary goal, that sins might be forgiven. Our world needs that message now. Indeed, our churches need that message now. It seems that people want to make Christianity first and foremost about all sorts of other things, being a good person, helping others, fighting for social change, and so on. But we can't forget the core message. Christianity is a message about sin and how we can be forgiven for it. The once for all great sacrifice of our high priest Jesus, completely dealing with our sin problem. Church, that is the gospel, that is Christianity, that is Easter. So as you go into this week, what a great passage to frame your own devotions and and time. And I encourage you, go to Matthew, go to Mark and Luke and, and, and navigate maybe in your time alone with God through the events of the Passion Week. But it's all about this, what Jesus has done. And ours is a response to it. Because he's done it all, we, we can love and we can help others and fight for social change and do those things because of what he's done. So would you stand? And we're going to pray and sing one final great song reminding us that it's all about Christ and Christ alone. Heavenly Father, there's nothing like the Lord Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice It takes away our sins. It sanctifies and sanctifies. And I just pray right now, Father, for my own (laughs) sanctification. Oh, Lord, have your way in me. How I want to be holy like you are. Jesus, your once for all sacrifice makes perfect, makes us whole and right with you and your once-for-all sacrifice brings complete forgiveness so that you don't hold our sins against us. Dealt with. In Christ alone. Rejoice. So as we sing this song, may the words now of our mouth be a reflection of the meditation of our heart. May those be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name.